0: All the mystery. Hello and welcome to our very first two-parter episode. Two-parter, like a real podcast. <laughs> I'm Athena, and I'm Chandra. This has been the most in-depth research I've done, and I'm I'm less prepared than ever. <laughs> So I totally didn't plan this, but as I was working on part two, I realized that this case was actually a two-parter on Unsolved Mysteries as well. I noticed that. The first time, to my knowledge, that Unsolved Mysteries had to do a two-parter, we had to as well. Yeah. It's all synchronicity. It's all working together. So it originally aired on November 9th, 1988. So just to explain what we're doing here... Next week we will be discussing the unsolved mysteries segments and sort of dissecting that. And today what I'm going to do is take you on a deep dive of the summer of Sam, aka the 1976 to 1977 shootings perpetrated by perpetrated <laughs> perpetrated by a killer who called himself the son of Sam. Break out your snorkels and your scuba gear. We're diving deep. So let's go back to 1976. It was the era of disco and Studio 54. Jimmy Carter was elected president, and Star Wars had captivated moviegoers for the first time. In New York City, poverty was up and crime was on the rise. The Guardian Angels patrolled the subways in their red berets, tired of the inadequate efforts of the NYPD. There had already been eight murders in those tunnels that year. On July 29, 1976, Donna Loria, 18, and Jody Valenti, 19, were returning to Donna's Bronx home from a disco called Peach Trees at 1.10 a.m. Donna was an EMT and Jody was in nursing school. They were sitting in the car talking, When Donna's parents pulled up, returning from a wake. Donna rolled down the window and her mother, Rose, asked Jody about the night. She was close to her daughter's friend, who used to tell her about her life and her boyfriend's. Jody told her there was a lot to tell, and Donna would tell her about it tomorrow. Donna then proposed they take the dog for a walk. Rose and Mike went inside to get the dog. Moments later, a man walked up to the car. Donna asked Jody, who is this guy, and just barely started to open the door when he pulled a gun from a paper bag and opened fire, firing three rounds. Rose, upstairs in her bedroom, heard a loud noise from the street. She ran to the window and saw Jody, bracing herself on the car, screaming, we've been shot. Donna had been shot in the chest. By the time her parents made it to the car, she was already dead. Jody was wounded in the thigh, but recovered. Mike said Jody could never face them after the shooting. It took Jody four decades to be able to speak about that night. She told the New York Post that it took her six years just to be able to get in a car at night, and years to be able to deal with loud noises like fireworks. Of the shooter, Mike Gloria said, quote, He deserves to die. She was 18 years old, and that's what he took from me. He took 18 years out of my heart, end quote. Jody was able to provide the police with their first composite sketch. People in the area also reported seeing a small yellow car driving around the neighborhood. Police determined the type of gun to be an uncommon forty-four caliber snub-nosed charter arms bulldog revolver. Both Donna and Jody had long, brown hair. Three months later, on October 23rd, Carl Dinaro, 20, and Rosemary Keenan, 18, were shot while sitting in Carl's car in Queens. Carl described glass exploding all around them, cutting their skin. He screamed for Rosemary to drive, and she floored the engine. The next thing he remembered, he was in the hospital with gauze wrapped around his head. Carl had been shot in the head, and Rosemary sped to the hospital to get him help. He had to have a metal plate inserted to replace a portion of his skull, but amazingly, he survived. Way to go right? Rosemary's a boss. Rosemary was only injured by glass. Her father was actually a police sergeant who joined the search for the shooter, but no one was apprehended. Ballistics once again determined the type of gun, a forty caliber Bulldog revolver, but because violence was so prevalent in New York at the time, and due to a lack of communication between police departments, the cases weren't connected. Both Rosemary and Carl had long brown hair. Just one month later, on November 27th, Donna DeMassi, 16, and Joanne Lomino, 18, had just walked back to Joanne's home in a middle-class neighborhood in Queens after a late movie. It was past midnight, and they sat on the front porch talking. As they talked, a man in fatigues approached and started to ask them for directions. They felt there was something off with him, and they wanted to go inside, but he started to say, do you know how to get to? And suddenly, mid-sentence, pulled out a gun and shot each of them once before shooting wildly as he ran away. The bullet grazed Donna's neck, but Joanne was shot in the side and seriously injured. The bullet had struck her spine. Thankfully, both girls survived, though Joanne was left paralyzed. Donna slept with her mother for three weeks after the shooting, and couldn't bear to face Joanne. Joanne remained in the hospital for rehabilitation for months. The Lominoes remained private, except to say that Joanne would use a wheelchair for the rest of her life. Witnesses were able to help compile a second composite sketch. There had been over 800 murders in New York that year, so police continued to assume these were isolated incidents of violence. Both Donna and Joanne had long brown hair. On January thirtieth, 1977, Christine Frund, 26, and her boyfriend John Deal, 30, were sitting in John's car after seeing Rocky at a Queens movie theater and were about to go dancing. They had been together for seven years and planned to get engaged on Valentine's Day. Suddenly, three bullets crashed through the car window. John grabbed Christine and pulled her down below the window level and slammed the car into drive. He got Christine to a hospital, but she had been shot twice and died later that night. John's mother told reporters that all he did afterwards was grieve, crying, and asking, why? John told reporters, quote, There's no sense that such a thing could happen. She was beautiful. End quote. The public and news media were starting to notice connections they began attributing the shootings to someone they dubbed the 44 caliber killer. The public was afraid to leave home. Women with long brown hair were considering changing their appearance, cutting their hair, or wearing it up. And people in Queens and the Bronx rushed to be home before dark. Except this one girl who was interviewed by a news anchor on the street. He was just walking around, tapping young women on the shoulder and saying, excuse me, excuse me, are you afraid of being targeted by the forty four caliber killer? I'd turn around and punch him. <laughs> yeah, well, she was like, she turned around and she gave him this look and was like, no. <laughs> she was like, no, I'm not letting that creep control my life. Which, I love the energy, but I'll say it might have been a time for caution if I'm totally honest. <laughs> the media was sensational and Pulled a lot of crap that I don't think would fly today. On March 8th, Virginia Voskarichin was headed home from school in the early evening. She was a 19 year old college student at Columbia University. She was majoring in the Russian language. She was described as smart, an excellent student who had just made the dean's list, and a friendly, warm, easy going person with a subtle sense of humor. She had just exited the subway tunnels and was walking to her home in Queens. People in the area heard the gunshots and ran to see what happened. Virginia had tried to use her schoolbooks to shield herself, holding them up in front of her, hoping to stop or at least slow the bullets. But they passed right through, and she died instantly. Finally, after five attacks, ballistics proved that the same gun had been used to kill Virginia and Christine Frund. The killings were conclusively linked. On March 10th, 1977, Queens Commissioner Michael Codd called a press conference where he announced that the same gun had indeed been used in all of the attacks. They asked the public to call if they knew anyone with a forty-four caliber revolver. They offered a general description of the shooter. He was a white male, 25 to 30 years old, 5 foot 10 to 6 feet, medium build with dark hair. They believed he roamed neighborhoods in a car, then pursued potential victims on foot. On April 14th, the NYPD formed the largest task force in police history, called Operation Omega. Fifty detectives worked around the clock taking tips and following leads. The Queens and Bronx Departments met to coordinate their efforts. The only hard clue they had was the gun so they began tracing ownership of every snub-nosed forty-four caliber in the country, which totaled approximately 28,000 guns. Police diligently patrolled Queens and the Bronx. Police profiling was brand new in the 1970s. Police psychiatrist Dr. Harvey Schlossberg was called in between the second and third killings when the public started noticing the similarities. He believed the killer hated women, possibly having an issue with a woman who looked like the victims, and got back at her each time he killed. He thought the killer might experience sexual inadequacies, and the revolver symbolized a phallus, which is very Freudian and kind of gross. (laughs) He said this was an unusual case, though, because unlike other serial killers, this killer didn't take anything or say anything specific to his victims beforehand. He didn't think the killings were spontaneous. He believed they were motivated by ritual, though what that ritual was, or what desire it filled, was unknown. He also believed that the killer was enjoying the attention, and feared that the publicity would cause him to get more creative with his crimes. Chief of Detectives John Keenan told the public that he was thought to be intelligent, cunning, a college graduate, and literate psychologists believed he was neurotic, paranoid, schizophrenic, and believed himself to be possessed. They wondered if the attacks were triggered by him losing a loved one or being jilted by a woman. Always blame the women, right? <laughs> they said the killer didn't know how to meet women or conduct himself with them. On April 17th, Alexander Isau, 20, and Valentina suriani 18, were sitting in Valentina's car in the Bronx at 3 a.m. They had been together for three years and had been on a date to see a movie. Alexander was a tow truck driver, and Valentina, described as vivacious and friendly, was a student at Lehman College majoring in acting. They were both shot twice in the head. Valentina was killed instantly. Alexander was taken to the hospital and considered to be in very serious condition. He died there at 4.30 a.m. without regaining consciousness. His family was by his side. Police searching the area made a significant discovery. They found the first of the infamous Son of Sam letters. It was addressed to Police Captain Joseph Borelli. It read, I am deeply hurt by your calling me a woman-hater. I am not, but I am a monster. I am the Son of Sam. I am a little brat. When Father Sam gets drunk, he gets mean. He beats our family. Sometimes he ties me up to the back of the house. Other times he locks me in the garage. Sam loves to drink blood. Go out and kill, commands Father Sam. Behind our house some rest. Mostly young, raped and slaughtered, their blood drained. Just bones now. Papa Sam keeps me locked in the attic too. I can't get out, but I look out the attic window and watch the world go by. I feel like an outsider. I am on a different wavelength than everybody else, programmed to kill. However, to stop me, you must kill me. Attention all police. Shoot me first. Shoot to kill, or else keep out of my way or you will die. Papa Sam is old now. He needs some blood to preserve his youth. He has too many heart attacks. Uh, me hoot, it hurts, Sunny boy. I miss my pretty princess most of all. She's resting in our lady's house, but I'll see her soon. I am the monster, Beelzebub, the chubby behemoth. I love to hunt, prowling the streets looking for fair game, tasty meat. The women of Queens are prettiest of all. It must be the water they drink. I live for the hunt, my life, blood for Papa. Mr. Borelli, sir, I don't want to kill any more. No, sir, no more, but I must honor thy father. I want to make love to the world, I love people, I don't belong on earth. Return me to Yahoo's To the people of Queens, I love you, and I want to wish all of you a happy Easter. May God bless you in this life and in the next, and for now I say goodbye and good night. Police, let me haunt you with these words. I'll be back I'll be back to be interpreted as bang 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 bang. Ugh Yours in murder. Mr. Monster. That's a heck of a stream of consciousness. In response to the letter, the police did something kind of surprising. They released a statement to the press addressing the killer. It read, simply, Son of Sam, we know you are not a woman hater, and know how you have suffered. We wish to help you, and it's not too late. Please let us help you. The police hoped to appeal to any good on him, based on the biblical references, and asked him to contact Captain Borelli if he would like to work with them. Meanwhile, in the Bronx and Queens, teams of young men started volunteering to escort people through neighborhoods. Women wore their hair pinned, under kerchiefs, or changed the cut and color altogether. Stores sold out of blonde wigs and pepper spray. Business was falling in bars and discos as people shuttered themselves at home every night. Children were even afraid to play in the park during the day. On June 1st, a letter arrived at the office of the Daily News addressed to Jimmy Breslin, a reporter and columnist at the paper. He had been covering the 44 caliber case. His assistant opened the letter and called him at home to tell him, You've received a letter from the son of Sam. He told her to send it straight to the police. It read in part, Hello from the gutters of New York City, which are filled with dog manure, vomit, stale wine, urine, and blood. Hello from the sewers of New York City, which swallow up these delicacies when they are washed away by the sweeper trucks. Hello from the cracks in the sidewalks of New York City, and from the ants that dwell in these cracks and feed on the dried blood of the dead that has settled into the cracks. JB, I'm just dropping you a line to let you know that I appreciate your interest in those recent and horrendous 44 killings. I also want to tell you that I read your column daily and I find it quite informative. Tell me, Jim, what will you have for July 29th? You can forget about me if you like, because I don't care for publicity. However, you must not forget Donna Loria, and you cannot let these people forget her either. She was a very, very sweet girl, but Sam's a thirsty lad, and he won't let me stop killing until he gets his fill of blood. Mr. Breslin, sir, don't think that because you haven't heard from me for a while that I went to sleep. No, rather, I am still here. Like a spirit roaming the night, thirsty, hungry, seldom stopping to rest, anxious to please Sam. I love my work. Now the void has been filled. Perhaps we shall meet face to face some day, or perhaps I will be blown away by cops with smoking thirty eights. Whatever, if I shall be fortunate enough to meet you, I will tell you all about Sam if you like, and I will introduce you to him. His name is Sam the Terrible. Not knowing what the future holds, I shall say farewell, and I will see you at the next job, or should I say, you will see my handiwork at the next job. Remember Miss Loria. Thank you. In Their Blood and From the Gutter, Sam's Creation, Point forty-four. Here are some names to help you along. Forward them to the inspector for use by NCIC. In quotes, the Duke of Death. The Wicked King Wicker. The 22 Disciples of Hell. John Wheaties, Rapist and Suffocator of Young Girls. P.S. Please inform all the detectives working on the slaying to remain. P.S. JB, please inform all the detectives working the case that I wish them the best of luck. Keep them digging, drive on, think positive, get off your butts, knock on coffins, etc. Upon my capture, I promise to buy all the guys working the case a new pair of shoes if I can get up the money. Signed, Son of Sam. Next to the signature was a symbol created by an X. On each side was the male and female symbols a cross above, and an S below. After evaluating the note, the police came to Jimmy Breslin with a copy and asked how he might be able to use it to help them. Because the note mentioned Donna Loria, the son of Sam's first victim, Breslin took the note to Rose and Mike, her parents, to ask them what they thought. Mike refused to look at it and tried to stop Rose, but she insisted. She said they had old cards written to Donna, and if she could recognize the writing, she might be able to offer the clue they desperately needed. I don't know if she considered it a blessing or a disappointment when she didn't recognize the writing, but at least it hadn't been someone her daughter considered a friend. Breslin published a front-page article titled, Give Up, It's Only Way Out. Much like the letter the police published, Breslin's article appealed to Son of Sam's statements of regret, offering help and safety and inviting him to contact again. The tone and wording of the two letters was so different that some questioned whether they were actually from the same person. The first was riddled with spelling errors and written in primarily uppercase with a shaky hand, while the second was written more neatly and went so far as to correctly use a semicolon. So I gave you samples from the two letters so you can kind of see. Yeah, I've been um, looking at them and going back and forth between them, comparing the letters that might stand out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and th- honestly, they're they're both in uppercase, and they're mm-hmm. really pretty similar besides one being neater than the other. Yeah. Although the content is pretty different. There's some really interesting imagery in the start of the second letter. The second one is very poetic at the beginning. It is strange that the first one had so many spelling errors, if you look at the whole thing in its original form, while the second has such an appropriate use of spelling and grammar. I loved this. Because of the reference to Wicked King Wicker, officers were detailed to watch and study the Wicker Man. (laughs) Wow. Other officers investigated anyone named Samson or Sampson with a P. Anyone. That's some fun homework. Woo. Detectives also contacted mental institutions about escaped patients, which is super ableist. Mentally ill people are two and a half times more likely to be victims of violence than be perpetrators of it. Put that another way mentally ill people are 250% more likely to experience violence than other people. Another semi fun tidbit the police were using decoy couples in unmarked police cars, sometimes with an officer in a brown wig, to look like a woman. I hope they had bulletproof hats. (laughs) Even the mafia joined the hunt for Son of Sam. Well, good guy mafia. (laughs) At this point, the New York police were spending $90,000 a day searching for the killer. 75 detectives and 225 police officers had investigated 3,167. Suspects. One detective interviewed outside a precinct told a news reporter that to solve the case, they would need a lot of luck and to be in the right place at the right time. On June 26th, Sal Lupo, 20, and Judy Placido, 17, were sitting in a car near Eliphas Discotheque at 3:20 AM. They were acquaintances who ran into each other at the bar. Judy was out celebrating her graduation. Once again, as they sat in the car conversing, the glass around them exploded as an unseen shooter fired into the car. A police officer in an unmarked car had just ended his surveillance of the nightclub. Sal was shot in his right forearm, but got out of the car and made his way a few blocks back to the nightclub to get help. Patrons called 911, but the lines were jammed, and two patrons ran three blocks to the closest police station. Sal, a bouncer, and others went back to the car, where they found Judy collapsed in the middle of the street, her white dress soaked in blood. Judy was shot in the shoulder, back of the neck, and a bullet lodged in her temple, and miraculously, both Sal and Judy survived. Way to go, human body. Mm -hmm. Great opportunity to confuse the hell out of us. (laughs) Judy's sister Donna said that she had been worried about judy because of her hair it was long and brown judy had gone out that night wearing it up but she took it down to show she wasn't afraid oh unfortunately neither sal nor judy saw the shooter they just saw a tall heavy-set man with dark hair running away others in the area said they had seen a blond man with a mustache driving around with his lights off which was suspicious The police wondered if the attacker was actually part of a team, a shooter, and a lookout. A witness of the shooting said they had been shot in combat style. The shooter took a stance before firing and used both hands. So now we have a killer who wears fatigues and shoots in a combat style. So I wonder if they were looking into military... But also, like, there aren't a lot of effective ways to shoot besides taking a stance and two-handed so you don't get knocked backwards. But this person seemed to know that. A lot of people w- would just hold up a gun and shoot, and the recoil would send their arm back, and they wouldn't necessarily be that effective a shot. This person means business. Everyone was vigilant on July 29th, 1977, the anniversary of the first murder which Son of Sam had referenced in his letter to Jimmy Breslin. Yet the streets remained quiet. But on July 31st, 367 days after the first murder, at about 2.30 a.m., Stacy Moskowitz and Robert Violante, both 20, were sitting in a parked car in Brooklyn, near a park, on their first date, watching the full moon. And by watching the full moon, I mean smooching under the full moon. Without them noticing, a man approached the car and shot each of them in the head. Unlike the other shootings, there were witnesses in plain sight. The couple was parked in a sort of lover's lane, and three cars in front of Robert's, 19-year-old Tommy Zeno was parked with his date. Moments before the shooting, Tommy happened to glance in his rearview mirror. He saw a man approach the car as if he was about to get in, then suddenly drop into a stance and start firing. He described the shooter as 25 to 30 years old, 5'7 to 5'9 with shaggy hair that was dark blonde or light brown and looked like a wig. He also noted that the shooter dropped into a stance and used both hands to shoot before running off through the park. Stacy and Robert were rushed to the hospital where Stacy suffered cardiac arrest. She spent eight hours in surgery and the doctor still only gave her a 50-50 chance. Robert was in reasonably better condition but his wounds were expected to leave him blind. Outside the hospital, Robert's father, Pasquale Violante, sobbed as he told reporters, quote, He's a good boy, never in any trouble. Pasquale had told Robert to stay out of Queens, and Robert said he would, for his parents' sake. He'd just go to Brooklyn. The NYPD had 2,000 cops patrolling Queens and the Bronx that night. But this was the first shooting in Brooklyn. The presence of all of those police didn't prevent the crime. Nope. Stacy died in the early morning. The damage to her brain was so significant that even if her body had survived, she would never have regained consciousness. She was the first break from the Son of Sam's pattern as she had chin-length blonde hair. When her mother told her to be careful that night before she left for her date, she had told her not to worry. He wasn't after blonde girls. Robert lost his left eye and his vision was impaired in the other. The ophthalmologist who treated him couldn't say if he would be able to recognize his attacker if he saw him again. Witnesses of Stacey and Robert's shooting reported sightings of a man driving a light-colored car, his age varying from teens to 30 years old, described as chubby with messy, dark blonde hair. Jerry Moskowitz, Stacy's father, spoke to the press saying, quote, I lost something very dear to me. a great kid. End quote. Her mother, Nisa Moskowitz, said that what was most important were the people he's killed and those he would continue to kill. And quote, an animal like this has to be caught, not to die or be killed, but to be tortured for life. He's not human. End quote. I'm just going to tell you right now: don't fuck with Nisa Moskowitz. <laughs> no, I'm looking at her face. I would not. She will kill you with her eyebrows. Mm -hmm. Those things are sharp. Pasquale was interviewed by the news outside the hospital, asking if he had told Robert about Stacy's death, and he said that he hadn't, despite Robert continually asking about her. He explained that he wanted Robert to have a chance to absorb his vision loss, before having to also absorb the loss of Stacy. There was an accumulative $20,000 in rewards for information leading to the capture of Son of Sam. The tip line was receiving 200 calls a day. One detective, you might remember, had told the news that to solve the case, they'd need a lot of luck and to be in the right place at the right time. That's just what happened when a Brooklyn police officer slipped a parking ticket under the windshield wiper of a cream-colored Ford Galaxy, part too close to a fire hydrant. Some people thought the Son of Sam wanted to be caught because he was so reckless in his attack on Robert and Stacy, shooting them in front of so many witnesses. Besides Tommy Zaino, there was a woman who reported seeing a white male wearing a cheap nylon wig. She wrote the last four digits of his license plate down and gave them to the police. Some said they saw a man jump into a yellow Volkswagen and speed away after the shootings. Cecilia Davis, who lived near the park, arrived home after an evening with a friend. They were triple parked, so she was looking behind in case a police car came. She noticed a man taking a parking ticket off of a cream-colored Ford Galaxy. He got in the car and came up behind them, blaring his horn since they were blocking the street. She said she gave him a dirty look as she walked past. You go, Cecilia. (laughs) At 2.30 a.m., she returned home from walking her dog, Snowball, who I've given you a picture of. Very cute. And the same man walked past her. He gave an intense look to her and her dog, and he stood out to her because he was wearing a jacket on a hot night and appeared to be hiding something halfway up his sleeve. She waited for him to pass because she didn't want him to see where she lived. which is pretty smart. On the other hand, I think I'd want to run in my house as fast as possible. (laughs) Approximately one minute later, she heard gunshots, but she dismissed the noise as being from a car. The next morning, she heard about the shootings from neighbors. She thought it was tragic, but didn't give it any more thought, and went to the beach with a friend. The next day, when she heard the description of the man they were looking for, she realized she might have important information, but she was afraid to come forward. She thought if he found out, he would come for her. It was two days after the shooting that she told her friend Tina what she'd seen, and Tina assured her that she could come over to her house to meet with a detective, to help keep it private. The detective told her they'd keep her identity a secret, and three days after the shooting, she was able to assist with another composite sketch. She later told the news, quote, I didn't know he was a killer. I didn't know. He looked nice. End quote. The creepy dude staring her and her dog down looked nice. Yeah, the two statements don't really go hand in hand, but she's on camera saying it, so it could be her trying to excuse why she didn't come forward sooner. The police started looking into all parking citations issued in the area that night. On August 9, 1977, NYPD detective James Justice contacted Yonkers Police to ask about a man who had received a $35 ticket from Brooklyn PD for parking too close to a fire hydrant named David Berkowitz. Yonkers is a city that neighbors New York City. Justice thought Berkowitz might be a valuable witness. John Keenan explained at a news conference that the police were routinely checking cars around the scenes of the crimes that had received citations in hopes that they would find a witness who didn't even know that they had important information. Also, I love that his last name is Justice. <laughs> it's like his future was written for him. To his surprise, the Yonkers dispatcher responded, Yeah, I know David Berkowitz. He's my neighbor, and I wouldn't be surprised if he was your guy. Yonkers PD were sent to Berkowitz's apartment, where they found his cream-colored Ford Galaxy parked on the street. Upon a visual examination, they noticed the end of a machine gun sticking out of a gunny sack. Overexcited, they illegally broke into the car and found letters written by Son of Sam in the glove box. Ooh, being overexcited's really biting you in the butt now. (laughs) Sure that they finally had their guy, as many as 15 police officers laid in wait in the street Yards and on rooftops for David Berkowitz to return. Among them was Berkowitz's neighbor, Craig Glassman, who happened to be a police deputy and was tasked with IDing Berkowitz when he came to the car. Finally, they saw him. He opened the door, got behind the driver's seat, and started the engine. They moved in, surrounding him with guns drawn. He looked up at the officers passively and said, quote, You got me. What took you so long? Detective John Folitico asked, Now that I've got you, who have I got? The response was, you know. No, I don't. You tell me. I am Sam. You're Sam? Sam who? Sam. David Berkowitz. Berkowitz was arrested for possession of the machine gun. The police obtained a search warrant, finally, for Berkowitz's apartment and described it as squalid. He had quilts tacked up to cover the windows, a single mattress on the floor surrounded by pornography, and a couple little shelves. One example of how the case was sensationalized is that news sources described one wall of the apartment as being covered in satanic graffiti, and I found pictures of his apartment and on one of the walls there was a hole as if it had been punched, and I gave you a picture of it so you can see what I'm talking about. Next to the hole written in thick pen, it said, Hi, my name is Mr. Williams, and I live in this hole. Then there's an arrow pointing to the hole. I have several children. I'm turning into killers. Wait till they grow up. My neighbors I have no respect for, and I treat them like shit. Sincerely, Williams. I was wondering what this picture was. I assumed that it was a note, and it was like a dark circle drawn on it, but knowing that that's a hole, it gives it a new level of, like, creepy... Mm -hmm and fascination, right? But it's definitely also not satanic. No, it's not. I wonder if the police w- said there was strange writing on the wall, and the newspapers just picked it up and ran with it, because um, they were definitely doing whatever they had to to sell papers, including posting horrible pictures of Stacy oh. on the front page. Yeah. But like you said, it's definitely not satanic. It's Quite possibly a symptom of mental illness or emotional distress, but it's not satanic. The police also found three notebooks where he'd recorded his thoughts and actions for years. he had recorded more than a thousand cases of arson, and based on what the books contained, it's possible that Berkowitz was actually an arsonist called the Phantom of the Bronx, who set between one and three thousand fires over the years. Between one and three thousand? Between one and three thousand fires. (laughs) Oh, boy. It hasn't been confirmed that he was the Phantom of the Bronx. I don't know why, but he definitely did set some fires. Whether he was that prolific is not confirmed. The most important thing they found was the literal smoking gun. The forty-four caliber Carter Bulldog revolver that in Berkowitz's hands had taken six lives and wounded seven. The night of his arrest, as word spread, Discos and bars cut the music to make the announcement, and the crowds broke out into applause as people cheered, laughed, and cried together. The police announced his arrest at a press conference, and said Berkowitz, feeling the police were getting closer and his opportunities to kill were getting smaller, was planning to take the machine gun and go out in a blaze of glory by striking a disco or a nightclub in Long Island and then, quote, fight it out with the police. They said that he would patrol in his car looking for victims, then park somewhere and leave his car to stalk the victim on foot, exactly as they thought. In news footage of Berkowitz after his arrest, he doesn't hang his head. He doesn't look nervous or ashamed. He looks around at all the people craning for a good shot, fighting to take his picture, with an almost incredulous smile like he can't believe that this is all for him. He looks comfortable. There was some surprise at Berkowitz's appearance. He was shorter and more well-built than expected, and I gave you all of the composite sketches to look at, Chandra, and so you can see that he really hardly looked like any of them. No, there's a lot of discussion about the composite mm-hmm. sketches in the various theories surrounding this case yeah, I can see elements of him especially in the first one and then like some sort of vague similarities in some of them although some of them look like somebody tried to describe to a person who had never seen a person before what a person looks like. Only one of the original four drawings that which are the ones that they showed on the episode of unsolved mysteries um really looked remarkably different from the others but like just in these sketches, if you just look at the noses, just focus on the noses. The first one is like a V. There's like a nostril outlined and a V mm-hmm. under the nose. Another one, you know, the bottom of the nose is pretty well outlined. One of the two from 77, the nose looks exactly like every nose that I drew in high school art classes. Mm-hmm and then the There's next one, one that's just two nostrils. Just two nostrils. <laughs> that's not what noses look like. So anybody trying to make any claims based on these composite sketches, I'm going to have a, a hard time trusting. Mm-hmm. But what about that last one? The last okay, well, the one composite that's from the side? Mm-hmm. That sketch is just a joke. My apologies to the artist, but it looks like a high school mascot wearing a Mm. straw wig. Yeah, straw wig. Yep. Right on the nose. And then the last one is just totally out of left field. Yeah. I I have no idea. Like, there's there's sort of a depth to the eyes, even with as little sketching as there is, Mm -hmm. that somewhat elicits... David Brookerwitz, if you're actually looking at his photo at the same time. Hmm. But one issue with all of them is just that he has this like really straight down nose. Mm-hmm. There's not a whole lot of curvature to his nose. And then none of them got his sideburns at all. Mm-hmm. Really, only the first one got the curly hair at all. Yeah. It was generally between midnight and 3 a.m. So none of these people got a really good look. Also, the memory just isn't terribly reliable. Mm -hmm. Most of Berkowitz's neighbors said he was nice, quiet, always said, hi, how are you? But kept to himself, and maybe was a little strange and moody. But other neighbors said he'd written threatening letters to them. On August 11th, 1977... David Berkowitz confessed to the shootings and said he'd plead guilty. But back to those threatening letters. I told you they found more Son of Sam letters in the glove box of his car? Mm -hmm. It turned out one of them was for his neighbor, Craig Glassman, the deputy who identified him. It read, Because Craig is Craig, so must the streets be filled with Craig, then in parentheses, death and huge drops of lead poured down on her head until she was dead. Yet the cats still come out at night too, and the sparrows still sing until morning. Craig lived right below Berkowitz, and recently a fire had been set outside of his apartment inside a bucket filled with gunpowder and live 22 caliber bullets. Craig had been receiving threatening letters at home, which were written sometimes in cursive script and sometimes in block letters. They included things like, quote, Craig, in your honor, I present you with my corpses. And, quote, true, I am the killer, but Craig, the killings are at your command. Craig, you're in danger. (laughs) You're in danger, girl. Run! (laughs) (laughs) The one I could find in its entirety, I'm not going to read in its entirety, because it had some pretty gross graphic stuff that I just didn't want to repeat, but in part it reads, Craig Glassman. You have been chosen. You have been chosen to die. Craig, I curse your mother's grave. You, Craig Glassman, are truly Satan's child, and now he wants you by his side. Come join him in death, little ones. Master Glassman, you are a man with power, the power of darkness. You are hereby ordered to unleash your terror upon the people. Destroy all good and ruin people's lives. Begin immediately. We will kill you. We will murder you. Remember, Craig, that your mother, the harlot, the lesbian whore, wants to love you, so make her happy. Kill some, your child. Really stops making sense. Remember, if you don't do as we say, you will surely die a premature death. It was signed, Your Brothers and Sisters, and then had a kind of postscript. Craig Darling. Craig Glassman, the cruelest, sickest man on earth. Cruel Glassman. Cruel Glassman. Mean. Terrible. Cruel. Hateful, Craig Glassman. Die, Craig. Die. That's an intense letter. I would move immediately. (laughs) And I would definitely get my kids out of the house. Yeah. And according to Craig's daughter, Craig had told associates that he believed his, quote, crazy upstairs neighbor could be the son of Sam. Craig wasn't the only one receiving letters. Behind Berkowitz's apartment building... A retired city worker who ran a telephone answering service named Sam Carr lived in a house with his wife, children, and black lab named Harvey. And I gave you a picture of Harvey, too. (laughs) I believe it was around April 10th when he received an anonymous letter complaining about Harvey's barking. On April 19th, he received another letter with the same handwriting that read in part, quote, I have asked you kindly to stop that dog from howling all day long, yet he continues to do so. I pleaded with you. I told you how this is destroying my family. We have no peace, no rest. Now I know what kind of person you are and what kind of family you are. You are cruel and inconsiderate. You have no love for any other human beings. You're selfish, Mr. Carr. My life is destroyed now. I have nothing to lose any more. I can see that there shall be no peace in my life or my family's life until I end yours. The cars called the police, but there wasn't much they could do about an anonymous letter. Ten days later, Sam Carr heard a gunshot and he ran outside to find Harvey bleeding on the ground. He saw a man running away. He rushed to the vet. Harvey had been shot, but thankfully they were able to save him. Once again, Sam went to the police to report the shooting, and this time officers actually came out to examine the letters and start an investigation eventual comparisons of Sam and Craig's letters proved that they were both from Berkowitz. And this wasn't the first time Berkowitz had an issue with a dog. So is this good, good boy I have a picture of here, the dog that Mm -hmm. he claimed told him to kill? Yep, that's Harvey, the good, good boy. Harvey didn't tell anybody to kill. No, he didn't. Harvey couldn't be possessed by a demon no matter how hard the demon tried. Nope, He's, he's too good. He's a good, good boy. Berkowitz was born June 1, 1953, as Richard David Falco. His mother, Betty, was an aspiring dancer, grew up poor, and was young when she married Tony Falco. Together, they ran a fish market until he left her for another woman. Betty started an affair with Joseph Kleinman, who was married. When she told Kleinman that she was pregnant, he told her to get rid of the baby. There's some insinuation that he was telling her to get an abortion, but it's possible he meant for her to give it up for adoption. Betty depended on him financially, so she gave up the baby. She listed her estranged husband as the father. Pearl and Nathan Berkowitz, a Jewish couple, adopted him. They didn't have any children, and they were delighted to have a baby. They flipped his first and middle names and gave him their last name, so he was now David Richard Berkowitz. Despite being loved and well-cared for, Berkowitz developed disturbing behaviors. He described having what he called seizures as a child, where he would flail on the ground violently, and his parents would have to hold him down to stop him from hurting himself and breaking things. I obviously can't say for sure, but what he describes doesn't sound like a seizure. It sounds more like a symptom of mental health. He said he was violent and disruptive in school he would scream for no reason. Eventually, his parents were ordered to take him to a psychologist or he would be expelled. He went once a week for two years but said it didn't change his behavior. He went through periods of depression where he would crawl under his bed or sit in a closet because, as he said, I had a craving for the darkness and I felt an urge to flee away from people, Sometimes at night, a dark force would come to him, and he'd be compelled to roam the streets. He struggled with some suicidal ideations that came as urges to step in front of cars or subway trains. His parents had him talk with a rabbi, teachers, and counselors. They tried to keep him out of trouble and consulted experts, who told them to let him express himself, so they didn't actually address his bullying, which might have actually made the situation worse, no matter how well-intentioned they were. Berkowitz himself says his parents were very loving. He knew that his struggle hurt them because they hurt for him. His mother, Pearl, passed away from cancer in 1967 when he was only 14, within months of the diagnosis. Berkowitz said he was angry about her death, and he'd felt he'd lost his sense of stability. Berkowitz had above-average intelligence with an IQ of 115, but little interest in school, and after Pearl's death, his B- minus average turned to Fs and Ds. Around 1966, Berkowitz had started to kill and torture animals, including his mother's parakeet. (laughs) If you loved your mom, you don't torture her parakeet. Just saying. After her death, he acted out through vandalism and arson. This fits the McDonald triad of serial killers. Which says that if a person has two of three traits arson, cruelty to animals, or bedwetting they could potentially become a serial killer. In 1971, he enlisted in the Army and served three years, one of them in Korea. He had a good military record and was a qualified sharpshooter. Later, Terry Peterson, an Army colleague, said that he had given Berkowitz the Son of Sam idea when he told him we are sons of Sam, referring to the fact that they had been sent by the government to do Uncle Sam's work. Hmm. Terry said that he never thought that Berkowitz was a violent person. He said that he was anti-violence and anti-establishment and against the government. This list of information collected by Radford University students pointed out that Berkowitz passed the psychological tests for the army. But after thinking about it, That wasn't too surprising, since first-episode psychosis typically occurs in the late teens to early 20s, and it can be triggered by drug use, and according to the students, Berkowitz used marijuana, mescaline, amphetamines, and LSD during his years in the service. Although he was clearly troubled from a young age, he didn't necessarily exhibit any symptoms of psychosis until after he left the army at age 21. In fact, he claimed he didn't start hearing voices until 1975. At age 21, Berkowitz converted from Judaism to being a Baptist, which is significant because he now believed in a literal God, devil, heaven and hell, angels and demons. After he left the army, Berkowitz tracked Betty down. He learned about the affair and that he was born out of wedlock, and although they developed a relationship at first, Berkowitz struggled with feelings of abandonment when he met Roslyn the child that she hadn't given away, the child who had been wanted. I would say he felt a kind of disgust at his origins, and he ceased communication with Betty. But he did stay on good terms with Rosalind. At least until he murdered six people. (laughs) I'm not sure about after that. In 1975, Berkowitz did a year of community college. That year, 1975, which was a very busy year for David Berkowitz, Nathan Berkowitz retired to Florida, and that left David Berkowitz pretty much alone in New York. He moved into a two-family home in New Rochelle owned by Jack and Nan Kassara. He signed a two-year lease and put down a $200 deposit. The Kassaras had a German shepherd who would bark and howl as dogs do, and the neighbor dogs would respond in kind. But to Berkowitz, this barking and howling became the voices of demons telling him to go hunting for the blood of young, attractive women. He said of this time, quote, The demons never stopped. I couldn't sleep. I had no strength to fight. End quote. And his delusions grew. When I moved in, the Kassaras seemed very nice and quiet, but they tricked me. They lied. I thought they were members of the human race. They weren't. Suddenly, the Cassaras began to show up with demons. They began to howl and cry out, blood and death. They called out the names of the masters: the Blood Monster, John Wheaties, General Jack Cosmo. After just a few months with the Cassaras in 1976, Berkowitz broke his lease to escape the howling and moved into an apartment at 35 Pine Street in Yonkers. Now, here's the thing about that intense look that he gave Cecilia and Snowball. Snowball's a dog. Hmm. So I wonder if he saw Snowball and was anticipating or perhaps afraid of receiving a message from Hmm. the fluffy little happy cloud that was Snowball. Over the years, Berkowitz had worked as a cabbie, a security guard, and even for the auxiliary police force for the 45th precinct for three years. Hmm. He would later say the demons told him he had to work, maintain a sense of stability, so he would blend in. At the time of his arrest, David Berkowitz was 26 years old and employed as a postal worker. After his arrest, Berkowitz was taken to Kings County Hospital in Brooklyn for mental competency testing. It was the same hospital Stacy had died in 10 days before. Eugene Gold, the Brooklyn DA, told news reporters that there was a vast difference between being mentally ill and legally insane. To be psychotic, he said, wasn't necessarily to be legally insane, and he was planning to prosecute, expecting him to be fit for trial. Berkowitz's defense lawyer, Philip Peltz, agreed about legal insanity versus being mentally ill, and said that people who are psychotic can easily be considered legally sane. During the psych eval, Berkowitz explained his motive. He didn't have anything against the victims. He didn't have any hatred or anger towards them. Really, they didn't mean anything to him. An entity named Sam had done it all through him. Erkowitz told psychologists that the Sam from his letters was a 6,000-year-old entity that spoke to him through Harvey, the car's dog. He admitted that he had tried to kill Harvey, both by shooting him and by throwing a Molotov cocktail at him, but his attempts were thwarted by supernatural interference. Or veterinarians. (laughs) And maybe not knowing how to make a good Molotov cocktail. Alternatively to the demon being in Harvey, I also read that the entity lived in Sam Carr, and that Sam Carr sent messages through Harvey to control Berkowitz. The Post reported that Berkowitz lapsed from lucid conversation to nonsensical ramblings during the assessment. He said there were dark forces that pressed him to do things he otherwise wouldn't have done, and the pressure would become so much that he knew he needed to find Sam blood. After a kill, he would sing to himself, enjoying the relief it brought from the tension that built up inside him. Meanwhile, the public was very vocal about wanting him dead. Catherine DeMassi and Mike Loria agreed. But Nisa Moskowitz? She told reporters she wanted him to die slowly. Quote, First his eyes should go, like he killed Robert's eyes. Then his brain should be picked like a chicken with cancer and let it go through. Slow. Slow. Very slow. I kind of love Nisa Moskowitz. <laughs> yeah, if somebody took somebody that I love, I, I feel like I would be on the same page as nisa yeah have that anger and cold rage yes yes initially psychiatrists daniel schwartz and richard weidenbacher felt that berkowitz understood that his actions were illegal was capable of understanding the legal proceedings but due to paranoid psychosis was neither capable nor interested in assisting in his own defense DA Eugene Gold petitioned for the approval of an evaluation by prosecution psychiatrist Dr. David Abrahamson, which I question the ethics of, to have a defense psychiatrist and a prosecution psychiatrist. It seems like they're going to wind up biased. You just want one psychiatrist who's going for the truth. Yeah. Dr. David Abrahamson said that although Berkowitz might show psychotic traits... He was not schizophrenic, had no thought disorder, no insanity, no deterioration of judgment, and was sane enough to stand trial. I have a feeling the definition of insanity has changed between the 1970s and now. He said the demons didn't come from a psychotic disorder, but were a conscious invention. Abrahamson said that Berkowitz could understand the legal process and assist in his own defense if he chose to do so. Schwartz and Weidenbacher eventually reversed their original opinion because Berkowitz's mental condition was improving with treatment. To me, that kind of sounds like he was mentally ill and needed treatment. If he was improving with treatment, then it does sound like he he was improving with treatment. I don't know. Treatment caused improvement. Improving with treatment. What, What do you treat? And they maintained that he was not sane at the time of the killings, but agreed that he could now participate in his defense. According to Berkowitz, his first attempt at murder was actually in 1975. On Christmas Eve, he claimed to have given in to the demon's voices for the first time, and he attacked a woman who was never identified, stabbing her multiple times. But when she didn't fall dead instantly, like in the movies, and instead turned and started screaming and fighting him, he got scared and ran away. It's possible her thick coat had actually protected her, because she never reported to the police or checked into a hospital. Then he came upon 15-year-old Michelle Foreman. He stabbed her six times, including once in the head, but was again confused about why she didn't die instantly, but rather turned and fought. And again, he ran away. Michelle made it to her family's doorstep, and a neighbor found her there. She was hospitalized for seven days, but survived. At some point, Berkowitz claimed that the Holland Oates song, Rich Girl, motivated the murders, which to me speaks to someone who is delusional and seeing messages where they're not, like the howling of a dog, the words of a song, a passage in the Bible. Psychiatrist Scott Bond corresponded with Berkowitz for two years and visited him in 2013 as research for his book, Why We Love Serial Killers. He believed that Berkowitz relished his evil celebrity status and enjoyed the terror and chaos he caused, just as Schlossberg had feared. Bond believed it boosted his fragile ego and gave him a twisted sense of purpose. His Son of Sam letters were self-promotion. He felt that Berkowitz tried to maintain his image during his trial and first era of imprisonment, but eventually relented. Berkowitz told Bonn, I was once an evil man. I truly believed that I was working for Satan, and I embraced the mission, Verkowitz believes that everyone has the ability to do terrible things in the right situation, saying that the reason people are so fascinated by serial killers, mass murder, and violent crime could be that deep inside, everyone has the desire to take out one's anger and frustration upon someone else. I wholeheartedly disagree. I can't ever imagine taking my frustration or anger out on some stranger. No, I don't feel like that is a normal urge for me, that's for no. sure. Berkowitz told Bonn he felt that the news deliberately misrepresented his supposed affiliation with a satanic cult and the story about Harvey speaking to him as Sam. I think he's the ultimate gaslighter. And I also think he's mentally ill. But because the case didn't go to trial, Berkowitz's actual diagnosis will never be public knowledge, at least not in his lifetime. So I want to return to what I said earlier. Most people who are mentally ill are more likely to be a victim than victimize. Mental health is not an indicator of violence. This case is an outlier. If you're really into true crime, it might not feel that way since words like psychopath get tossed around all the time, but it remains true. And as a society, we need to let go of the idea that people commit violent acts because they're mentally ill. Most often, they're just angry white incels. <laughs> Abrahamson embraced the cliché and blamed Berkowitz's mother, Betty, and women in general for his killing spree. Amen. Oh, man. In his book, he says, quote, He'd lost the love that should have been given him when Betty gave him away. Good grief. He was a baby. He didn't know. Until he was 21 years old, Pearl was his mother, his only mother who loved him. But to Abrahamson, Pearl's death was another abandonment. So when he started killing women, he was enacting revenge against his mothers. Bergowitz had initially chosen Abrahamson to be his biographer, but stopped communicating with him when his allegiance turned to a man named Maury Terry. Oh dear, who we'll get into. Next week. Back in 1977, three individual psychiatric evaluations found Berkowitz competent to stand trial, and on May 8, 1978, the trial began. In the courtroom, Jerry Moskowitz was sobbing, Stacy's sister was wiping tears from her eyes, but her mother, Nisa, looked straight ahead, glaring at Berkowitz. She said, I want to see the animal's face that took my baby's life, and I want him to see me. I got chills. Uh, Yeah, yeah, I got chills too. (laughs) But rather than go to trial and against his attorney's advice, Berkowitz said that he understood that what he had done was wrong and pled guilty rather than plead not guilty by reason of insanity. Because of the guilty plea, a special agreement was made to consolidate all of the legal proceedings into a single trial. Brooklyn Judge Joseph Corso, Bronx Judge William Kapelman, And Queens Judge Nicholas Cicalis all gathered in one courtroom to accept his guilty plea. When Judge Tassalis asked Berkowitz if he had meant to injure his victims in Queens, Berkowitz replied, Oh no, sir, I wanted to kill them. And it was damn lucky for the Yonkers Police Department because that illegal entry of his car when they saw the gun and broke in, meant none of the evidence in the car, including the son of Sam letters in the glove box, would have been admissible in trial. They would have still had the gun because that was in the house, thankfully, but still, that was a bad move. Berkowitz's sentencing was scheduled for May 22, 1978, but as he was brought into the courthouse that day, he started saying he didn't want to be sentenced. He tried to fight off five officers, kicking and biting, and he lunged at a seventh-story window trying to throw himself out of it, but he was subdued. The officers dragged him into the courtroom, where he started chanting, Stacy was a whore. Nisa stood and screamed back, You bastard! You animal! Berkowitz screamed, I'd kill her again! I'd kill them all again! Robert got up and shouted, I'll kill you, you creep! You creep! before falling back into his seat and bursting into tears where his father tried to comfort him. Berkowitz was removed and they postponed sentencing for three weeks and ordered another psych eval, so Berkowitz got what he wanted that day. Two officers had to be treated for minor injuries. During his May 18th eval, the psychologist said that, when asked about what will happen in court, so this was before this hearing, Berkowitz's face lit up and he said, I know, but I'm not telling so he might have planned the uproar ahead of time. Although he said in his letter to Jimmy Breslin that he didn't want attention, everything he did and everything he does says that he relishes the attention. In the following psych eval, he was again found competent, and finally, on June 12th, for the charges of murder, attempted murder, and assault, Berkowitz was sentenced to 275 years in prison. Due to the nature of the guilty plea, his sentence included the possibility of parole after 25 years. Judge William Kaplman told Berkowitz, You grovel in the very depths of human degradation. One of two $10,000 rewards for the capture of Son of Sam was divided between Sam Carr, Cecilia Davis, and Tina and Stephen Zaccarelli, who were the friends who encouraged Cecilia to come forward. Sam Carr had filed a report with the police days before the arrest, stating that he thought his neighbor was the killer. Berkowitz spent four months in a psychiatric hospital before being sent to Attica, a supermax prison, where he was held until 1990. While in prison, there has been at least one attempt on his life. In 1979, another inmate slashed open the left side of his throat, opening a large wound that required 50 stitches and left a huge scar. Berkowitz refused to identify the attacker, saying that it was the punishment he deserved. Also in 1979, Berkowitz called a press conference to announce that he had fabricated the demonic possession story. He also rejected any notion that he was schizophrenic. In 1987, he became a born again Christian. I thought it was interesting that he said he had a moment of enlightenment after reading Psalm 34 which is said to have been written by the biblical figure David and which bears the subtitle A Psalm of David when he pretended madness before Abimelech who drove him away and he departed. I can see a sick person named David feeling like this poem was speaking directly to him. He asked afterwards that he now be called Son of Hope. He's involved in prison ministry and is a spiritual counselor to other inmates. No. He released two evangelical videos called Son of Sam slash Son of Hope and The Choice Is Yours with David Berkowitz, which were distributed for free to prison chaplains across the country. Son of Sam slash son of hope mm-hmm. sounds like him trying to continue to gain notoriety from his murders. Mm-hmm. That does not sound like any kind of reparation. He says that he's humble and doesn't like attention. But like I said, everything he does makes me think he likes being revered, he's whether it. it's because he's evil or extremely good. He says he doesn't like attention, and then he releases videos of himself. hmm Berkowitz's first parole hearing was in 2002, and he wrote a letter to the governor of New York asking that his parole hearing be canceled, saying, quote, In all honesty, I believe that I deserve to be in prison for the rest of my life. I have, with God's help, long ago come to terms with my situation and accept my punishment. The governor had previously made statements to the press basically saying there was no way Berkowitz was getting out, so I wonder if Berkowitz had some kind of compulsion to tell people what he thought they wanted to hear. That's another thing that I feel comes up consistently with him. The request to cancel the hearing was denied, but so was his parole, and so has it been. Every two years, when he comes up for a new hearing, at his 2016 hearing, he said that he knew release was unlikely, but he felt that he had improved himself and wasn't a risk. His most recent parole hearing was supposed to be in 2020, but it was delayed due to guess what? COVID-19, the global pandemic that we're all still living through. I hope you're all safe and healthy out there. Best best wishes to everybody. It's wild to think that. The son of Sam is currently struggling through the same pandemic that the rest of us are here in 2021. It is. It's a really weird connection of history with something that feels so long ago. Shortly after Berkowitz's arrest, the son of Sam Law was passed in New York, due to speculation that publishing companies were offering to pay Berkowitz for his story. Also sometimes called notoriety-for-profit laws, the Son of Sam law ruled that all money earned would be seized and given to victims' families, so that perpetrators couldn't benefit financially by selling their story. It was eventually overturned for being unconstitutional, but it was rewritten and replaced as a law in 2001, and many states have their own version. The new version required that victims be notified when a perpetrator receives $10,000 or more and gives them an extended period of time to sue the perpetrator. In 2005, Berkowitz was planning a memoir, despite the victim's family's outrage, and he said the funds would go to the victim's families. Son of Hope, the prison journals of David Berkowitz, was published in 2006, and though he does not receive any royalties from the sales, I couldn't find who does. Did anybody actually buy it? (laughs) Probably a lot of evangelical fundamentalists. We'll get to it. Hmm. Berkowitz has actually spoken out against, quote, murderabilia, the selling of items owned by or involved with murderers and serial killers. People sell letters from him all the time, even people he writes to because he considers them friends. Or people will come up with ruses and write to him as if they want to be pen pals, but really just want to get a letter so they can sell it. He has said that he's troubled by the practice. He wrote to Andy Kahn, a crime victim advocate for the city of Houston who campaigns against murderabilia, quote, Most of these letters and other writings were written during a very dark and tormented part of my life, and how I wish with all my heart that those horrific and tragic Son of Sam shootings never happened. It was a nightmare for me and for those whose lives were hurt and devastated by my actions. End quote. Ended? Ended by his actions? Yeah. Even when he takes responsibility, he still somehow manages to not take responsibility. It stood out to me that he put himself first there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Andy Kahn credits Berkowitz with convincing eBay to prohibit the sale of murderabilia on its site, because if serial killer and sender of creepy letters David Berkowitz, son of Sam, says nah, I think it's going to be a nah for most people. (laughs) And he receives like 10 to 20 letters a day. I don't receive letters. (laughs) And I haven't killed anybody. Nisa Moskowitz, because I have to finish her story, wound up letting a lot of her hatred of Berkowitz go. And they actually communicated for a while. He even sent her cards on Mother's Day. They communicated until he backed out of a taped interview he had agreed to, where she expected to finally get an understanding of why he did what he did. The New York Post described Nisa as, quote, fiery and funny in the face of unspeakable tragedy, end quote. I was very sad to learn that in her life, Nisa lost all three of her daughters. Oh. Nisa passed away from breast cancer in 2006 content to be rejoining her family in the afterlife. Not crying. As of 2006, Berkowitz is seen as an apostle by some evangelical fundamentalists, who have gone so far as to call him Jesus-like. Oh gosh. (laughs) A church maintains a website that posts his Christian writings. In their eyes, the bigger the sin, the better the Christian and his suffering in prison represents the suffering of all Christians. No, 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 no. <laughs> what? I swear, the entire time I was reading this article, I was, like, giving it so much eye. I wasn't even looking directly at the page. Since becoming a Christian and throwing himself into Bible study, Berkowitz feels that he's found the reason he committed his crimes, which is something he was always searching for because he didn't understand. But what he's found was that there was a literal demon inside him from birth, and the dogs really did communicate with him, but it was all a trick by Satan. God came and kicked the demon out, and God's purpose for him is to now fight Satan in the world. Berkowitz said he's a humble servant, not Christ-like or an apostle, But he said something similar in his Son of Sam letter, and, like we've said, I don't believe that he doesn't like all the attention. Around 1990, after his transfer from Attica to Sullivan Prison, Berkowitz began to claim that he had met people involved in the occult in 1975, saying he had always been interested in it and liked horror movies growing up, specifically Rosemary's Baby. He said that starting at age 22, he would see signs and symbols everywhere he went that pointed him to Satan. He said he started practicing occult rituals and believed something satanic entered him. To the public's surprise, in 1993, Berkowitz announced that he had only actually killed three of the six victims. He proclaimed that the attacks had been planned and carried out not by him, but by all the members of a satanic cult of which he was a member. So in other words, he heard about this little thing going around called the satanic panic and decided to cash in. Something like that. Because just as a demon named Sam had once planted thoughts to kill in his head, just as a psalm of the Bible seemed to speak directly to him, this claim of satanic cults may have been implanted by Another relentless figure. Next week, we'll dig into who it was and whether David Berkowitz was truly a lone gunman or part of a dangerous and cunning satanic cult. Thank you for joining us. If you'd like, you can link up with us on Instagram where you solved a mystery. You can also email us at you solved a mystery at gmail.com you could leave us a rating and review i heard a podcast say leave us a five star rating and review i thought that was pretty bold but you know (laughs) if you'd leave us a rating and review on apple podcasts that'd be dandy if it was five stars it would be even dandier oh yeah also maybe you could share with a friend maybe sharing with friends is a nice thing to do as always i'm athena and i'm chandra join us next time For the conclusion of The Son of Sam. We got trouble right here in this closet. With a capital T. Capital B. Rhymes with C And that stands for cat.